0: Welcome to another in our series of Kehilat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study.
1: We are in Parshat Chukat this morning. We read Chukat and Balak together. This year we are reading several parshiot together when we have a leap year. We need um, those split out. We need four extra Shabbatot. So, um, this is one of the ones that we read together Chukat and Balak. All right, so we're in pa- beginning of Parshat uh, Chukat uh, 19, chapter 19, something new and different. God speaks to Moshe and Aharon saying, Zot Chukat HaTorah Asher Tzivadonai Lemur. So, we're getting a Chuk now. And a Chuk is a law that has no a uh, reason behind it, that you can't figure it out why you would do this. Um, that is the definition of a chuk. So we're getting chukat we're getting some kind of a chuk here that God commands. para we are getting the rules, the laws of the para aduma, the red heifer, which has no defect. We're used to seeing this. We're used to seeing this with everything that could be offered for a sacrifice. We're used to seeing this with the priest himself. Bodily, he cannot have any um, thing wrong with his, what we would call wrong with his body. So, tmima, no defect. Asher en bamum, right? So, no no defect at all. Asher lo ala aleha ol, that the ol, the, uh, the what do you call it? Yoke has not been placed on her ever and you shall give it to Eleazar the priest and it shall be taken outside the camp and slaughtered in his presence Eleazar shall take some of the blood with his finger and sprinkle it 7 times toward the front of the tent of meeting the cow shall be burned in his sight its hide flesh and blood shall be burned its dung included so this is a holocaust right and the priest shall take cedarwood, hyssop, and crimson stuff and throw them into the, cons- into the fire, consuming the cow. We've seen this before. You've studied with me enough to know, oh, wait a minute. If we're going to have some kind of ritual of purification, some kind of offering or some big time purification thing, then we have to have cedarwood, hyssop, and crimson stuff. Right? When the leper comes back to the camp, we have this. We have this many different places so it's not surprising at all that we see these being thrown into the fire of the para aduma the red heifer which is going to be the mechanism for purification yeah, really, really. the priest shall wash his garments and bathe his body in water after that the priest may re-enter the camp but he shall be unclean until evening so this process of preparing the para aduma the red heifer the process of Preparing it to purify people renders the priest impure. So the priest becomes impure on behalf of the people in order to prepare the detergent that will clean the people. And we're going to see what it cleanses them from. It's interesting that that's not given first, right? The reason for the para adumah is not given first. The instructions for the para adumah is given first. All right. He who performed the burning shall also wash his garments in water, bathe his body in water, and be unclean until evening. So both the priest and the person who's prepared all of this, they become impure. A man who is clean, right? So somebody who's pure, Tahor, Ish Tahor, someone who's in a state of ritual purity, shall gather up the ashes of the cow and deposit them outside the camp in a clean place to be kept for water of lustration for the Israelite community. It is for cleansing. So the ashes are to be taken outside the camp and it's to be kept in order to add to water that will become the water of lustration, meaning the water that will cleanse the Israelite community. Right? All right. Look at verse nine that's here shaded in gray. Those of you who read Hebrew... Look at the end of the sentence, so what what is it going to be le like it should be guarded and kept for what le nida so for waters of nida so we all, we only think of nida in terms of menstrual impurity, but that 's not the only nida that we have in the torah right there's there 's a different kind of nida that we 're going to see here um, that the para aduma cleanses he who gathers up the ashes of the cow also shall also wash his clothes and be unclean until evening this shall be a permanent law for the israelites and for the strangers who reside among you he who now here's why we need the para aduma interesting that it comes after the instructions how to make it he who touches the corpse of any human being shall be unclean for seven days he shall cleanse himself with it on the third day and on the seventh day and then be clean. If he fails to cleanse himself on the third and seventh days, he shall not be clean. Now, I want you to look at the Hebrew of verse 12. So, heat pa'el, when you get that, yeet anything. It's in the form of heat pa'el. It's reflexive. It's something one does to oneself. Notice the shoresh. What is the shoresh, Natasha Rowland, of yit chata? If yit is part of what makes it he feel, what makes it reflexive, what is the shoresh? Chet tav aleph. What is that about? Sin. Ah, exactly, Rita Efros. It's <laughs> about sin. But wait a minute. This is what cleanses one from ritual impurity. So why is this word? What does this word mean? Ha. So it's just like English. Sometimes a word has what the word means and it's opposite in it as well. So when I use the word in English to cleave, Right. Therefore, a woman cleaves, a man cleaves to a woman, meaning they come together. But I can cleave something in two, which means I cut it in half, right? So this is the same thing. Hu yit he's going to, in a sense, atone or cleanse the sin. But, but it's from the shoresh sin. So he's going to sinify himself, which is the opposite of sinning. So on the third and seventh day, if he fails to cleanse himself on the third and seventh day, lo ye taher, he will not be, he will not be tahor. Whoever touches a corpse, the body of a person who has died and does not cleanse himself, defiles the Lord's tabernacle. That person shall be cut off from Israel. Since the water of lustration was not dashed on him, he remains unclean. His uncleanness is still upon him. So right so if somebody touches a corpse this is corpse impurity which we know is the strongest kind of impurity there is but if the person doesn't take care of that state of ritual otherness that one gets from touching a corpse then one notice that notice this defiles the lord's tabernacle right so the mishkan becomes at it becomes actually defiled without the person having to go to the Mishkan. If the person is in corpse um, contamination and does not take care of that, it automatically, that dross is drawn to the mish the Mishkan. And that, if you don't take care of it, right, is a problem. Since the water of literature okay. This is the ritual. When a person dies in a tent, whoever enters the tent and whoever is in the tent shall be unclean seven days. So the same amount of tum'ah applies when one is just in the proximity, like in a clo- enclosed quarters with uh, some- someone who's died, the corpse so you if you touch it at seven days that you are tame, and if you are just in the tent with it in proximity to it in a closed space, you also are unclean for seven days, and every open vessel with no lid fastened down shall be unclean so it so it it transfers into vessels as well, which is part of where we get to toival stuff comes from, like kashrut, like when we have to take care of something because it is it has been um it has been decoshered. And in the open, anyone who touches a person who was killed or who died naturally or human bone or a grave shall be unclean seven days. So any kind of proximity to death brings a tumah of seven days. Some of the ashes from the fire of cleansing shall be taken for the unclean person and fresh water shall be added to them in a vessel. A person who is clean, so someone who's in a state of ritual regularness, someone who's tahor, shall take hyssop, of course, because if it's going to be a ritual about decontamination, it, it has to involve right hyssop, dip it in the water and sprinkle it on the tent and all the vessels and the people who were there or on him who touched the bones or the person who was killed or died naturally or the grave. So we're talking about the person who touched these things is the one who is sprinkled with the... Ashes from the para aduma put in clean water. And um, and then the person shall sprinkle it upon the unclean person on the third day and on the seventh day, thus cleansing him by the seventh day. He shall then wash his clothes and bathe in water. And, 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 and at nightfall, he shall be clean. If anyone has become unclean and fails to clean himself, that person shall be cut off from the congregation for he is defiled Adonai's sanctuary. The water of lustration was not dashed on him. He shall be unclean. All right, already somebody has a hand up. So Judas, did you want to ask something? Yes, there is a ritual as I understand it when someone dies that there is a person who prepares the corpse, wraps the corpse, and then someone who sits with the corpse for a period of time, are they exempt from this or do they have to go through the ritual of, of cleaning themselves. We don't have any rituals for this anymore. They're, everyone is impure Orthodox, Orthodox. forever. Orthodox. Because there's no Mishkan, there's no temple. Okay. Everybody is impure forever. So, so you. Okay, so we don't have to solve that problem. No, it's okay. not a problem. All right, it's only a problem for people who trace themselves to be Kohanim, to be from the priestly caste. We're not going to get into what we think about that. Um, But they have issues with not allowing corpse impurity. So they won't go to a cemetery. They won't be near a grave, blah, blah, blah. Um, Which makes no sense since we have no temple. Nobody can be pure anyway. So anyway, it's even in orthodoxy, even in orthodoxy. Now there are levels of family purity that, that are still observed so that when a woman is menstruating, she is ritually impure and then has to go through uh mikvah and those rituals associated right with family purity. But a man Thank also you. goes to mikveh before his wedding. He'll often go to mikvah before Pesach. So, you know, there, so there are levels of, of purification that, that we still have, but, but in general, the system is such that, that there is no real ritual purity. Okay. Or Thank you. Okay. Uh, so then let's go. To, Amy, yes.
0: I realize that we don't like to ascribe to Kashrut the idea of um, staying away from disease. That, right. Uh, diagnosis. But um, I happened to look up Hyssop just now. Yeah. And apparently it's got some, it's used in cooking, but it's got some medicinal uses for both respiratory and for GI uh, problems. And it seems to me that if the reasons for this is a bit cryptic, are a bit cryptic, um, it could very well be that if you don't want to be in a tent with somebody who's dead, or you don't want to be touching somebody who's dead, and if the reasons for death are infection or something other than quote-unquote natural causes, uh, it could be construed that this is something to keep the uh, the Israelites well and not spreading infection.
1: So, so I, you know, it's, I'm not, as an anthropologist, I'm not one who's going to ignore, right, the, the crossover between maybe some things that they saw that were good and efficacious around, right, preventing certain things that that doesn't influence some of these rituals for sure, for sure you know, and the origins of them for sure may have some, you know, root in the medicinal properties of some of these things. It's just that we don't locate meaning there. Right? Like, so yeah, so I can totally get with maybe that's partly how all of this stuff originates, but it's not where we find meaning, right? So the meaning comes from and that we're going to see in a minute, some, some really beautiful teachings that we're going to see in a minute. The meaning comes from, A, the fact that we can be purified, that we can toggle back and forth. A, a corpse contaminates forever, right? When it's, when it's in the grave, it still contaminates you for seven days. So the corpse contaminates forever. Only the living person can toggle between pure and impure, only the living person is able to move from one state to the other. The dead are stuck. They're static, if you will. So that, that so it's, so it's other places that we locate meaning. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So I know people had their hand up, uh, Brian Searle and uh, Mark. So, Brian, you want to go?
0: Let me get this straight. So <laughs> there's this impurity that you can't see. You don't know if anybody's actually caught it or touched it. It's an honor system. They have to say, look, I touched a dead body today. I, I need help. Um, it's unseen. We don't know the, the ramifications or what happens if we go out without a mask. It sounds like what's happening Correct. today. This unseen, it, it causes tremendous fear in our society, and this ritual impurity obviously caused some fear among the Israelites that they needed to be cleansed of it.
1: Hence, the ways that these texts are speaking to us because of what's going on in the world right now. Exactly. We understand a little bit about being in a closed tent <laughs> with a dead body. If you believe a dead body communicates to ma, you, you can get contaminated. You're aware of that in a closed tent with a corpse in a way that, right that is different right? So all of us here might feel comfortable social distancing on the lawn and having cocktails with our neighbors on the lawn, but nobody's going into anybody else's home to have cocktails mm-hmm. around here, right? So so exactly. These texts are taking on a different resonance for those of us living through COVID-19. It's invisible. You're not sure what, what it's going to mean, but you know, if you're exposed to it, it can have consequences if it's not dealt with.
0: Right.
1: Okay, good. All right, Uh, who else, Mark?
2: You know, I I don't know if this would uh, take us too far away from where you wanna go with this, but the whole question of otherness seems to come into this. And um, uh, of course that has uh, immediate uh, relevance not only to COVID-19, but to Black Lives Matter and other sorts of contemporary issues, but I was struck by the fact that uh, this applies primarily to the uh sort of to the Jewish in group people can become other and then they can become uh, part of the group again Correct. Is, there a, is there a way in which people who are not Jews or not part of the particular group can become Uh, can uh, move from the state of otherness to the state of being a part of the group?
1: So it's a good question. I'm not sure what the Israelite view of non-Israelite purity and impurity would be. My guess is peoples who were part of another tradition had their own understanding of ritual purity and impurity. So, um, so, in other words, look at the Egyptian Book of the Dead. Mm-hmm. Elaborate ritual about, right, what's right. right and wrong and what you should do and shouldn't do vis-a-vis, uh, you know. Anyway, so there there are very elaborate cultures around ancient Israel that had their own relationship to these ideas. Mm-hmm. What we have and what, we, what I know, that the only one that I know is this one, is this system, and it was binding on uh, – israelites right to keep the camp pure so mm-hmm. that the presence of god right could dwell there mm-hmm. all right. so uh, sure mm-hmm. all right so somebody just asked in the chat dana asks so this red heifer was sacrificed very often we don't know um but finding a red heifer was incredibly rare for a cow to be born all red was very rare um, the rabbis in the Talmud go into, go into a great length discussion, a huge discussion about what you had to have to, to have an actual para adumah. And they said it couldn't have even one hair on its body that wasn't completely red. Right. And that had no blemish. Right. And so that like the, the situation would be so complicated to produce an actual para adumah that would have been kasher for these purposes. So, so they seem to think it's very rare. Right, so uh, just a tiny bit of these ashes would have been used because it was a very rare event to find a para aduma that didn't have any blemish whatsoever. So let's look at some teachings around this, some unpackings of this. Parshat Chukat opens with the ritual of para aduma, right, and um, the purifying waters made from them. It will also encourage us to recognize and appreciate the invisible investments and sacrifices that we benefit from. So she, so here, um, uh, Rabbi Weiss is talking about um, this crazy ritual that you, you benefit from as a, as a person who is experiencing Tum'ah from a corpse. Um, and she says, solving this mystery of how a pure person becomes impure in the process of removing someone else's impurity will teach us about what it means to truly invest in and sacrifice for someone else. So the Talmud goes into a huge discussion about the craziness that the person who prepares this, anyone involved in preparing the para adumah, becomes impure. And there's a lot of time and energy spent in the, in the madrashic literature about what that is and that it's considered a mystery. How could something that cleanses render someone impure? How can your handling of detergent render you not pure, so so that that becomes a huge conversation in the Madrashic literature. But we're going to skip over the conversation. You should read this piece on your own. It's very interesting. Um, it's at the web, It's at Hadar, their website, and uh, it's under this week's parsha, Chukat. Purity and impurity. Second, second, this this sentence here. Purity and impurity are not absolute categories like forbidden and permitted. They are states that people and objects can enter into and escape from. When a human being contracts impurity, it is a temporary state that needs to be remedied, a stain that needs to be cleansed. Death touches us all, and we all come in contact with the impurity it imparts. But unlike death, impurity is a state which is impermanent, right? So I I mentioned that a, a little while ago, which I hadn't really thought of before. And she says, When we pay attention to this quality of impurity, we are able to understand the, quote, mystery, the chok, meaning the part that isn't rational, of the para aduma, and reveal that it is actually quite intelligible. If I have a dirty floor that I would like to clean, I take a mop and a pail of clean, soapy water. After I'm done mopping, the floor is clean, and the pail of water is now dingy and disgusting, right? So so, so, Rabbi Yoshua from Sachnin has a question in the Talmud, how could it be that soapy water which cleans has now itself become unclean? Because I understand that the water in the pail has absorbed the dirt from the floor. When something is cleaned or purified, the defilement doesn't disappear. It is transferred. It doesn't just go away, right? It's transferred. And in this case, I've been thinking a lot about the frontline workers Right, the people who are dealing with patients um, who are positive for COVID, or you know those of us who are coming into contact with people who are asymptomatic. Right, it, it doesn't disappear. These you know when the people are being treated, it the, the things are transferred. The person who leads the scapegoat absorbs some of the impurity. Blah 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 blah. Okay, I want to go down to her some of her exploration of the meaning for her of this. Okay, this is beautiful. I didn't. I just. Maybe you've heard this, but I forgot it. The calf that is referred to in the Midrash, and we're not going to go into the Midrash, we don't have time, is the golden calf, which was worshipped by the people and considered to be the primary and paradigmatic sin that Bnei Israel committed. This sin has a putrefying effect on the people, inhering in them, and needing to be purged, meaning... The golden calf, the sin of the golden calf stays. It doesn't just go away. So yes, there was a plague. And yes, the people got forgiven because Moshe interceded on their behalf. But in the Midrashic literature, the idea is it doesn't really go away. And it continues to have a putrefying effect on the people. And according to this midrash, purification is analogous to, or perhaps even synonymous with the cleaning of filth. The mess that was made by the child, the calf, is cleaned up by the mother, the fully grown cow. Although the mother is not at fault, she does the cleaning. Similarly, the Kohen is not at fault. The Kohen does the cleaning. So this fascinating idea from the Madrasic literature that I think I forgot um, is that wa- why a para aduma, why a red heifer? So a heifer is a mother cow, and the the mother cow in some way comes to, to be the agent of purification because the, her child, the calf, was the agent of the biggest the biggest episode of national um contamination from sin that ever happened in in the legends of our people. So a very interesting tie to the past that we inherit in some way some of the guilt still, some of the dross, some of the ickiness of the original sin of the egahazahav of the golden calf. But you might say I wasn't there. I wasn't there for the, for the sin of the golden calf. How can I in any way carry? I didn't do it. If I didn't do it, isn't it pretty unfair to say that somehow I carry any kind of a stain from that? Well, let's look at what Rabbi Sid Schwartz has to say about that. In this week's Parsha Chukat, we read about the ritual of the red heifer, blah, 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 blah. A Midrash says that the purification rite is to atone for the sin of the golden calf. Interestingly, the requirement is not just for the generation that engaged in that idolatry. The rabbis believe that later generations bore some responsibility for the transgressions committed by previous generations. The Jewish tradition has an expansive understanding of culpability. That is what it means to be Jewish. Reading the Parsha this week, juxtaposed to an America that is finally getting woke to the transgression of racism for which we are all partly responsible... The meaning of the red heifer ritual hit me like a ton of bricks. Just because we have averted our eyes to the suffering of Black Americans for generations does not exempt us from responsibility to remedy an injustice that has been allowed to exist for far too long. And yes, it may impact our privilege because freedom is never free. Jews like most white people and most of us do pass as white and enjoy the privileges of being white in America have a host of reasons to deflect responsibility for America's original sin of racism. I have heard dozens of arguments from white people denying that the privileges that they enjoy contributes to the oppression of black and brown people. But in the end I can boil all all the arguments from a shelf full of books on white privilege down to a poster that I saw at a Black Lives Matter rally I recently attended. It read, Privilege is when you think something is not a problem because it is not a problem for you. Spend some time talking to black people about the obstacles they face to access goods daily, to access good schools, healthy food, adequate health care, equal justice under the law, and you too will feel ashamed of the privileges that we enjoy and that we take for granted. Contemplate the statistic that in the year 2020, the net wealth of an average black family is only 10% of the wealth of an average white family in America. Consider how many public policies have contributed to, contributed to that statistic. Or put yourself in the shoes of a black child who is more likely to see police as someone who will harm them than as someone who is there to protect them. Abraham Joshua Heschel said famously, some are guilty, all are responsible. I took this, I excerpted pieces um, of his his talk that he gave, Jews and racial justice, making amends or avoiding responsibility. That's Rabbi Sid Schwartz, a reconstructionist rabbi. So Sid, like a lot of us, is seen in the context of the times we're living. And some of these midrashim start to make a lot of sense, right? The midrash, it says, we in some way carry some of the of the contamination from the part from the uh, egg the golden calf how can you say if i didn't participate that i in any way ha- have to deal with that well because that's how it is right that we, we may not see ourselves as racist we may not feel like we have oppressed somebody else but we carry a certain amount of ickiness and if you will blame and responsibility from the generations of of our ancestors our white ancestors who have oppressed black and brown people who have committed genocide of black and brown people and so we so we there was a like Sid I had this moment of oh right Like that's what a lot of us are coming to realize is that we actually do carry, right. A lot, a lot of that and need to get woke to that. Like he said, and like, what's our, what is going to be our, our red heifer, like that, that helps change us because we're the only ones who can change people who are alive uh, today. What's going to change us from that state of Tum'ah, that state of carrying around some of that dross, right. To people who are more close to Tahor, to to pure. What is it going to take from us at, to to do that, to, to make that shift? I think is an interesting question for our time related to the Parsha. All right. So um, I understand uh, um, the transfer of impurity says Richard Rajay reminds me of the empath from the original star Trek TV series is impurity from the golden cat. The same as Christian original sin. Interesting. So certainly there's a tinge, right, of the Christian idea of original sin if we carry, right, sin through the generations. And I know Richard knows enough about our tradition to know that we don't have original sin. This is not that. I know Richard's knowledge level, and he knows that. I think what he's asking is, doesn't it smack a little, (laughs) like, of original sin? So, yeah, right, it does. So that there is this element of some kind of wrongdoing that is so big that its implications get carried and put on future generations, right? And right now, I also think about environmentalism, right? I think about the environment and I think, right, the fact that I am comfortable and want to drive my SUV, you know, and fly around the world whenever I want to without worrying about my carbon footprint or using plastic straws, like there are so many ways that my behavior is going to have implications, right, far down the line from my actions. And so I think there's this mix in Judaism between, nope, it's who does it and only who does it, and then they do teshuva, and then they're forgiven, and then we're done with it. But really, there's also this other element within Jewish tradition that says, but what you do has consequences far beyond you. And we are not great these days about paying attention to that. We have leaned very hard because we are post-emancipation, because we are post-enlightenment. We have leaned very hard into the individual in Judaism. And it's all individual. And I as an individual am responsible. And I as an individual have to do tshuva. I as an individual have to take responsibility. But there is a communal aspect that we've kind of been pushing to the side. There's a generational aspect we've pushed to the side because it makes us uncomfortable. We don't like it in our individualistic society. We don't like communal responsibility, but I think we're coming to, you know, a time where there's going to be a real shift. And I hate the term paradigm shift, but I think there's going to be a paradigm shift in our time that's starting now, right? Both with the the virus, which is a pandemic which none of us have experienced. Right, that was a hundred years ago the last time that happened. And a hundred years ago, you might've gotten a letter from somebody in another country saying people are dying, but you didn't see it. And you didn't see all those people stacked up in hospitals in Italy. For the first time ever, we have a sense that the entire globe Mm -hmm. is being impacted by this virus. We are connected to other people in a way never have we experienced not in our lifetimes. And I don't even think with the Spanish flu, there was an awareness the way there is now um, about how connected we all are by the, by this pathogen. This pathogen has, has helped us realize if I get on a plane and I go somewhere, it has implications in a way now that we've been trying to ignore, right? Those countries over there, those countries down there, right? We, We've seen ourselves as separate, and I think there's a paradigm shift happening with this pandemic, because we know this is not the last pandemic. This is among the first, you know, but, and I know we've had SARS, and we've had H1N1. I know we've had other ones, nothing like this, and I, so I think this is the beginning of a time where we're going to get it, that we are seriously connected to the rest of the world as much as we hate that idea. And certainly people involved in the conversation about the environment have known this for a long time. Whatever China's pollution levels are affects us and vice versa. Um, And I was reading some article that said something about the ozone layer has like healed a lot. Like the hole in the ozone has healed a lot because nobody's been driving, right? The amount of driving has gone down so much that it actually is healing the hole in the Sky, whatever that's called, um, right? So I just, I think, I think everybody's kind of getting it, that there, there's something shifting now. And I think it's critical that we be open and, and really allow the message of that in, really allow it to change how we think and how we behave. It's critical that, that we start to get it. All right. Um, everybody good? Anybody have a question? Anything you'd like to
3: comment? I I have a comment, Amy. I think yep. um the whole issue of masks and whether we have a social responsibility to other yeah. people yeah. or whether it's just about I have a right not to wear a mask. Mm-hmm. And the issue is do we have a social responsibility or do we only have individual rights? That's a beautiful, a
1: beautiful other illustration, Bert, of exactly, exactly this moment. Exactly right. That it's, you know, I have a right not to cover my face and you can't tell me what to do with my body because I'm a free citizen of the United States, blah, 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 blah. That is exactly the thinking that has driven so many of our communal decisions for the worse, right? Right. Um, And I'm not saying you all know me well enough to know I'm not saying we shouldn't have individual rights and that we, right. But when it comes to my right to contaminate you, the Israelites understood that you don't have a right to contaminate everybody else. If you are in a state that's going to possibly contaminate somebody else, you have a responsibility to take care of that. You have to go to the priest and say, Right, I've been corpse contaminated. You have that's your responsibility, and if you don't, you influence whether or not Yerivafeh the Shechina can dwell in the communal camp and protect the community. They got this, and we so often try to distance ourselves from this kind of stuff in Leviticus. Like we, we just, we came out of Leviticus and we were dealing with this a lot. So many Jews want to go, that is so ridiculous. It's such an old nonsense. But we're getting it in a different way that they understood the fury some of us feel when we see people not wearing masks.
3: Mm-hmm. I think it was in the 1930s, if we have a lawyer here, probably correct me if I'm wrong, the whole issue reached the Supreme Court of, is it free speech to yell fire in a crowded theater? Correct.
1: If we're going to endanger no. other people, it is not free speech, right? And, and this is where a lot of us go back to. You have to wear a seatbelt. You're not allowed to drive 90 miles an hour through a school zone. Why? Why? putting other people at risk and your individual rights go away when you're directly putting other people in harm's way and in danger. And and this is the moment that we're getting to. It, it, and we see the flashpoint that it is in this country. First of all, it wouldn't be a flat the flashpoint that it is if we didn't have leadership from the federal and right. Making it an issue. I get that, but there's enough people that are on that bandwagon that we see the remnants of this idea I mean you see their anger you see our anger we are at a real we are at a real crossroads here I believe as western society and um and it's it's painful to see the rupture because it's painful to see how, how much passion there is behind, I don't need to worry about anybody else.
3: Right. Nicholas Kristof in the New York Times had a a column, I think it was yesterday, said not wearing a mask is like driving drunk.
0: Yep. That's right. Yeah.
3: And we don't don't have the right, you know, we are required to have automobile liability insurance. And that cost us money. It's a requirement in the state of California. Why? Because if we hit somebody else, that makes sure that that person has the opportunity to collect something. Right, so There are many things. That's right.
0: Um, Amy, yeah. I,
3: do,
0: I do believe that there are some people that are not well informed, particularly in South Dakota and in America or whatever, that think that wearing the mask is supposed to be protecting them, um, as opposed to wearing the mask is protecting the person next to me yeah uh, now it's it's their responsibility to make themselves informed, but I think that's this is part of the- this is a a good part of the confusion
1: right so confusion and ignorance i'm going to put aside for a second you, you know what I mean like
0: because
1: yeah. that's a different that's a different issue I'm not saying it's not something that we have to deal with, but it's different than I mean, that's a problem with the fact that, again, we have no leadership from the top that's helping educate everybody consistently, right? So I get it. That's an issue. It's a problem. What I'm talking about is we see in our own time, right, the anger and the fury around these two opposing ways of seeing things. Do I have a responsibility to the community or not? When it comes to contamination, that's exactly what the Torah is dealing with. That's exactly the question the Torah is asking and instructing around saying, absolutely, you have a responsibility to protect the community from your contamination. Nothing's wrong about you being contaminated, by the way. Nothing, remember, nothing is bad or wrong about tum'ah. We are commanded to bury our dead. We are commanded to become ritually impure, to take care of the and respect the corpse. So it, there's nothing wrong with being tameh right? Just the way they say there's some people who, who attach value to like, especially in the Middle East. There's a lot of stuff around people don't want to admit they have the virus. So they're not getting treated. And they're spreading the disease to all of their relatives because it's a boucha. It is, a, um, it is something shameful to admit they have the virus. So people who misunderstand impurity as bad are in the same spot. They're not gonna deal with it. If we, but Torah understood that Tum'ah happens, we're human. And as long as we're alive, we're gonna toggle between Tum'ah and Tahara. There's nothing wrong with being Tameh, you have to deal with it. You have to go get treated. That's your responsibility. Your responsibility is not to never become tame. Your responsibility is when you know you are, you have to go seek treatment. Right? It
0: and goes back to yeah.
1: And if you don't know that you're Tame, that's what Yom Kippur is for. Right? right. Yom Kippur is to like spray uh mm-hmm. vaccine over exactly. the entire Community, because you might have caught it and you don't know it. You might have caught it and you're asymptomatic, but you're going to spread it. So we're going to give the vaccine on Yom Kippur to everybody. It goes, it
0: goes back to your definitions of um, as regulation, dysregulation.
1: Yes. Um, Natasha. I just see a lot of parallels between what you were just saying um, that the And I know you've said it before, but something new hit me now with words like, you know, it's similar to like mental illness you know and the shame attached to that in our society that that there is actually nothing wrong with mental illness except for the shame that people attach to it and the judgment and it's the same as like i treat my mental illnesses the same way i treat my physical illnesses i go to a doctor i go to a therapist i treat you know the things that come up and it and it is the societal application of shame to clean or unclean as, as a bad or positive thing. I think it's actually like a Taoist phrase that I love that says like, you know, the good and the bad is it, like the differentiation between the good and the bad is the sickness of the human mind. Right. Like it's not good or bad. It just is. It just and is. We have, yeah. And so, so um, uh, picking up on that. Um, thank you, Natasha. Um, Rabbi Arthur Waskow wrote a, a piece talking about the old, the, uh, the, what is it called? I, I keep wanting to say oxen, but oxen are as well. He put it on the yoke. So, what does it mean that it can't have been yoked in the in the Talmudic literature? When they look at having not been yoked, it means the yoke can't even have touched her neck. She doesn't have to pull anything, not even a centimeter. If the yoke ever touched her neck, she's she's disqualified as a red heifer that can affect. This ritual of purification. So he has this interesting take on that, and he said the power to be cleansed, to be sanctified or purified, is essential to every person. Now comes the issue: Can kedusha, let's say purity, holiness, whatever, be yoked? What happens to kedusha if it is controlled by human desire, driven in a particular direction which one wishes for, um, exploited? The answer is it becomes disqualified, unfit, blemished. The power of holiness, Kedusha, the power to transform impurity to purity must itself be holy and pure. If it is sullied with desire for acquisition or power or with commercialization – or even with intent to safeguard itself unnecessarily, it becomes a disqualified holiness, which removes one farther away from God and purity, causing therefore no real change, right? So this idea that if I hang on to my status as pure, right? As let's say, if you're talking about mental illness, I'm typical. When I hang on to that as what makes me, it makes me better. It makes me special. It makes me, you know, whatever, fill in the blank, then it, it disqualifies, Davka, the idea that it's a good thing and holy and brings me closer to the divine. It's the opposite, right? It, then it's canceled, right, in a certain way. So be, being so proud of being typical and like, you know, like wanting to stigmatize those who are not itself makes me not so typical, you know, in terms of the kind you'd be proud of. It it makes me an, a yucky person, you know, it makes me, I don't, I don't, I don't, it, it doesn't match exactly what you were saying, but I think I love his point that if we try to yoke Kedusha and use it for our own purposes, it's the opposite of Kedusha. That which pure moves someone from impurity to purity is canceled if there's an agenda behind it. So, you know, I think of people who use how holy they are you know, like, I don't know, you know, you know who I'm talking about, you know, those people, right. Who, they are so pure. They are so good. They are so whatever. Right. And, and it's, it's all about using it. You know, Amy, if you just let go of your anger, you wouldn't have
0: allergies.
1: (laughs) You know, those people like my blood boils. Um, And so, probably because i was raised with some of that right so um you know if you would only let go of that you wouldn't have cancer right and and just the incredible damage that that does and that it's actually shaming other people and blaming the victim rather than actually being pure and whole and and spiritually mature and 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 uh grown yeah all right so somebody else want to say something before we move on
2: you know, there. this comes up in so many different ways. There's an old saying um, that I understand is uh, sort of a legal aphorism that uh, goes, fill the seats of, of justice with good men, not so good, absolute in goodness as to forget what human frailty is.
1: Okay. The psychoanalyst uh, bringing us <laughs> right, the interpretation that is very apt. All right, I want to close with just a little piece. I don't have time to do a lot of it. You should go and look these pieces up. They're amazing in their entirety. Um, Death Impurity by Rabbi Hochstein. So she talks in this piece a little bit about what I said earlier, that only the living can move from a state of purity to impurity and back again. Um, But I love this that she talks about. She talks about responding to death. And that death continues to um, put us in a category, proximity to it, um, defiles us. The dead defiles, she goes, yes, the dead defile forever, no matter how much time has passed, but a living person can toggle between states of impurity and purity and can be renewed after contact with the dead. Our Parsha does not present this possibility for purification as a neutral option, a mere description of a difference between the living and the dead. It is rather a normative demand. Those who come in contact with or proximity to death must respond to it. They may not remain indifferent, neutral, and unaffected. The encounter with death must trigger action, not paralysis one cannot hide from the encounter with death, nor may one sink into it for a prolonged period of time. So it's a much longer piece. It's a beautiful piece. I don't have time to do much more of it. But what I want to say is her point is exactly the opposite of seeing death as something bad and impurity being communicated by a corpse as some, something bad. She's saying that's, that's an important thing. Death should affect us. Death should affect us. When we lose somebody that we care about, that should affect us. We just can't stay stuck in it. But we're supposed to take action, right, that then helps return us to the community, helps return us to normativity, right, regularity, as we've talked about Tum'ah and Tahara being dysregularity and regularity. We need to find the things that will bring us back that it's an action we are commanded to take and that death, death permanently affects us and that that's not just okay, that's a good thing. It's supposed to. When we turn on CNN and we watch the stacking up of bodies from this, it's supposed to affect us. It's supposed to impact us. What Torah is saying is you can't languish in that. Right? You and you have to do something. You have to take action to address the way that death affects and impacts us. And I think that's a beautiful teaching about this uh stuff is that you know, we, we both need to allow death and loss to 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 impact us. It has if you if you want to just go not from death but to loss, all of us who have lost a certain amount of routine, routine stuff, routine pleasures. Eliana and I went to a DJ Maxx. And I thought I had died and gone to you know, the ninth heaven. It was because the little things that we miss that have fallen away, that have been taken away from us out of a sense of what's right and good to do is to protect everybody by staying home, to protect Judy by us staying home most of the time. I get that. We're supposed to confront the loss and allow the loss and the grief to impact us. And then we're supposed to take steps so that we don't sit in it and just languish in it. Rita, you had your hand up. Um, We were talking about you you can't just stick with uh, thinking about the death. I know there's a a tradition that after you're sitting Shiva, the first thing you're supposed to do is visit somebody else. In other words, get out of your own head and move back to the community. So I thought that was a good illustration of that transition. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and when you finish Shiva, the practice is you get up and walk around the block, right? Your, fir- your first steps are to leave your house and just kind of walk around your block to like belong to your block again, if you will, because you've been right, sitting at home, trapped, trapped in a way by the tradition that tells you sit at home. You may want to go to the pool and go swimming, but you're in mourning. You can't. You have to attend and be present to you and allow that death to impact you. And and then when it's time, and we can discuss what we think time is, but when it's time, then you need to get up and walk out the front door with your beloveds, whoever they are, and walk around the block and belong to your block again. And I think that is a powerful um, interpretation of of this text. So, uh, so may we, as we're facing unprecedented, as we keep saying unprecedented times, may we... Um, May we allow it to impact us. May we allow the demonstrations in the streets to impact us. May we accept our responsibility and our having been tainted by the original Ega Hazahav. But may we also be looking for the red heifer. May we also be looking for that which is going to shift us out of just a sense of culpability into a sense of being empowered to use whatever power we have uh, to end systems of injustice. And may we allow kind of the loss of our own time from this pandemic, both to other human beings and to ourselves, what we've lost. May we allow that in may what we allow it to affect us so that we're present to all of that. And, and may we, again, find ways that we like this, I believe this is part of the paraatuma for us. This is the red heifer for us It's Torah study, right. And meditation, it's being together and doing those things, which, which address the very losses because because this is so filling for so many of us to be together and, and to learn together and to have conversation that's below the, the surface, um, which even of the facts that we're so used to hearing um, so much talk about.
0: You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kahil at Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.